If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is, and hour number two is now underway. Thanks for being with us. Eight minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock on this Tuesday, the 29th morning of the 12th month of the year of our Lord, 2020. Just a couple of days left of 2020 misery. But I got bad news for you. 2021 isn't going to be any better if we don't change the way we are doing things. Joining us now to talk about the way 2020 comes to a close and what we do have, what are the top priorities in the coming year is our good friend, Peter Kersenow. Peter Kersenow is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is also now a member of the 1776 um, Commission, uh, which is uh, aimed at, by President Trump, aimed at helping to educate Ohio, or not Ohio, but America's children on actual historical facts uh, with, with respect to our country, largely in response to the 1619 Project, which is fictional. Uh, Peter is also, of course, a Cleveland attorney and a best-selling author and columnist. Pete, good morning. How are you, sir? Bob, doing pretty well, considering it's uh, 20, we've had about 363 days of uh, 2020, but uh, looking forward to the new year. Yeah, you and me both. Pete, um, have you had your first meeting with the new commission yet? We have. In fact, we've got another one at noon today by uh, Zoom. So, uh, you know, we're going to try to do as much as we possibly can before the Biden administration comes into office, if it in fact comes into office. And of course, look, I'm, I'm not uh, Pollyannish about this. That's what it appears. Um, and uh, he's probably, I would expect, going to disband the commission because we're trying to preserve the notion of America's the greatest nation on the face of the earth, preserve the founding, preserve the historical uh, accuracy, which is under assault in many of our schools and is being promoted by the left. The left wants to undermine our, our history, wants to besmirch our history so that they can justify changing what the United States of America is. They want us to think that the United States is an awful country. Every country has flaws, but they focus on the flaws, magnify them, even lie about them, invent other flaws in order to justify their changes into something more suitable to their interests, more socialist interests. Pete, obviously I misunderstood the commission uh then if you said that biden can just disband it i know i talked about this last week and maybe i didn't get a clear understanding of it um i thought that since the commission was created by executive order 
it cannot just be disbanded summarily by another executive unless it has committed flagrant violations of of law or of uh, civil rights or something of that nature. So he can just say, no, I don't like this commission. It's gone when he comes in. No, uh, he can't. Indeed, do that. Yeah, I'm being a little uh, flippant about that. It's not simply waving a magic wand and it goes away. But I fully expect that he'll take the procedural steps to disband the commission or reform it to his liking, or not his liking, because he has no clue. I, I, I suspect Joe Biden doesn't even know it exists. But his advisors, and believe me, I, I mean, if, if any of your listeners have taken a look at his closest advisors, not only are they, many of them, retreads from the failures of the past, and I don't say that in a partisan fashion. I'm looking at it objectively. They are retreads from f- failed policy proposals of the past. They want to re-implement those proposals. And, but his advisors and others, after they get around to it, at some point will say, okay, let's go through the APA hurdles to get rid of this thing. Um, he'll do everything he can to hamstring it. So we want okay. to get as much done as we possibly can. Uh, why we still exist. It's funny. Um, let me tie those two things together, Peter. Um, you mentioned some of his advisors, and we're talking about uh, the commission, the 1776 commission, which is largely in response to the 1619 project. Let me marry those two things together. The, the 1619 project was championed, of course, by Black Lives Matter Incorporated, the organization, which, of course, uh, I and you and many other people are very, very critical of. It's not to say that black lives don't matter. Of course, they do. Uh, but the Black Lives Matter organization has no interest in black lives. They are a political affiliated uh, business. They're, they're a corporation for making money. But um, Black Lives Matter uh, pushed for the election of Biden-Harris and expected a seat at the table in return. And this is where I marry those two things together. You talked about his advisors. Joe Biden has had transition meetings with a lot of important people about the agenda going forward, and Black Lives Matter has been very public. And in fact, I think it's on their Instagram or their Twitter feed or something. They're counting the number of days since they had any contact with Biden or Harris or the transition team. So what do you make of that, Peter Kersenow, that this organization that has been so responsible for so much carnage, quite frankly, that we have seen in this country over the course of this calendar year, um, and that is also responsible for some of the carnage in, in educational policy and in curricula uh, around this country, they are not being embraced, at least at the time being, by the new administration that they pushed for? It's a standard operating procedure for Democrats. What they do is try to inflame um, racial tensions around elections. It becomes more and more pronounced the further along we get in our history because they really don't have anything else to run on. So Black Lives Matter are useful idiots, um, you know, using that in a historical sense. That is, the Democratic Party will use them to inflame racial tensions, to try to motivate the black vote to come out, because as we've indicated in the past, unless they get a minimum 88 to 92 percent of the black vote, they cannot win a national election. In this particular case, Trump improved by 50 percent his total of the black law uh, vote, and we still are expected to think that he lost. Uh, that's why, you know, I, frankly, I'm, you know, I'm not one of these you know, conspiracy theorist guys. Uh, I've never been one of those guys. But the objective evidence clearly shows that something went profoundly wrong in this election. Whether you call it fraud, whether you call it anomaly, or a combination of both, which is what I believe, um, you know, we've had this incredible 
um, this blindness, enforced blindness by the media, a failure to look at the objective evidence, simply moving it along all Reasonable people, of course, can't believe that any any of these things, in fact, occurred. But if you just take a look at the evidence uh, in front of you, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. Just in the last 24 hours, Republican state legislators in, in, in Pennsylvania said, hey, wait a minute, we've counted the votes. And there are 200,000 more votes than were people who actually voted. No one's looked into these things. We've had procedural dismissals of these cases, but the facts have not been examined critically in a court of law. We've had testimony from hundreds of individuals, but I'm going far afield. The point is that Black Lives Matter in any kind of black organization or movement is simply a utility for the Democrats to get elected. So after the election, eh, who cares? And that's been the process for every four, every two years, frankly. And the only chagrin that I've got, the only the only disappointment I have about that is that I wish more and more my fellow blacks would wake up and say, wait a minute, we've been voting for these bozos for 90 years with no discernible improvement. Every single city, every single polity in which we've prevent, uh, uh, elected Democrats have either been static or have gotten worse over the years. But anyway, I'm getting a little far afield, but that's why I think so far Black Lives Matter remains at the back of the line. They'll get a hearing. They will get a hearing from the Biden administration, but that's not at the forefront of their agenda. Do you think that will change, though, as, uh, you know, after Inauguration Day, or I'm not saying first hundred days, but in the first year of a four-year term? Because I'm wondering, you know, if Kamala Harris isn't going to insist upon it. You know, remember, she's there only because Joe Biden made a pledge that he was really too stupid to to think about far ahead. You know, he said he will absolutely pick a woman, and then in the summer of... uh, uh, of George Floyd, uh, it's going to be a black woman because of, you know, the, the black uh, uh, power movement in this country after the George Floyd situation. So, you know, he kind of pigeonholed himself there. It's got to be a woman. It's got to be a black woman. And how many black women are qualified or capable to be number two on the ticket? Uh, she's there because she is a woman of color, even though she's not, quote unquote, African-American. She is there because she is a person of color. She's not going to allow Black Lives Matter to be ignored, is she? Um, I don't, I think she is, I think Kamala Harris will do whatever she thinks is in her best interest. That's been her history. I don't think she's got a strategic vision for the country other than that which suits herself. So she's going to simply do whatever is necessary to make sure Kamala Harris at some point becomes president. And whether that Which would lead her to do what I just said, right? I mean, because yeah, well, she's got her eyes on the number one job. Biden is not going to be a two-term president if he takes over at all. She's got her eyes on the number one job either after a four-year term or because he can't finish out this first term, which we all speculated upon. So it would be in her best interest to cozy up to the special you know, interest identity politics groups like BLM. I think it might. It might. It remains to be seen. I think they're simply weighing at this point. Remember, the calculus at this point is a little bit scrambled politically. I don't think the Democrats truly have an appreciation or an understanding of what coalitions will get them past 2022 and 2024, because the, the past election can't be relied upon as a bellwether because it was anomalous and fraudulent. So, again, we look at the fact that Trump was able to increase his share of the black vote by 50%. And no no Republicans ever been able to do what Trump did with respect to the black vote. And smart Democrats are looking at that very nervous, saying, okay, what do we do to get blacks back in the Democratic column? 
does it help to embrace Black Lives Matter? And to the extent we do, who does it alienate that we can't afford to alienate? Because it looks like Hispanic voters were very turned off by the embrace of Black Lives Matter. So it's a, it's a dicey proposition. I tend to agree with you that, you know, because she is so, I think, uh, self-serving, and um, I don't think she's... I think she's a horrible politician. She's not very bright at all. Totally I think agree. she'll do. I, I think she'll do what um, the conventional democratic wisdom is. And the Democrats have moved as far to the left as we've ever seen them. Frankly, farther to the left than, than further to the left than we've ever seen them. So I think it's going to be driven naturally by the fact that what's in control of the Democratic Party, Party right now is some version of the um, uh, Ocasio Cortez, the Squad sense of politics. They're going to try to modulate that a little bit, but my goodness, uh, they're enthralled to those folks. And Nancy Pelosi's in jeopardy right now for a whole host of reasons. So, look, they they made their bed, and they're going to have to deal with these folks. To that extent, I do think that Kamala Harris is going to be more receptive to Black Lives Matter than she otherwise would be. I think that's very, very true. And uh, time will tell, uh, you know, how how long it takes for her to get into Joe Biden's ear about exactly that. Uh, All right, Pete, since we're talking about identity politics after this short time out, I'm going to use two of your identities and call upon you. Uh, one, your, uh, your status, your identity as a black male, and then secondly, as an attorney. I want to call on your legal expertise as it pertains to standing your ground in the state of Ohio. That's coming up on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, it's 1024. I want to dive right back into this now with Peter Kershaw. Pete, I said, I said I wanted to talk about this... Uh, through your perspective uh, as a black man and as an attorney, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has until Thursday, so two days, to sign or veto a bill that expands the st- stand your ground protections. Now, as it is, you do not have a duty to retreat and run and hide if you are attacked in your home or in your car. You may use force, including lethal force, to defend yourself in those places. The new law or the new bill that has been passed by the General Assembly says that extends to other areas. You don't have to run and hide if you're on the street either. If somebody tries to harm you and you are in imminent danger or someone else is in imminent danger, you may indeed use force to stop them. Now, I bring this up, Peter, because numerous uh, members of the Ohio House have called this bill racist. They call it the kill-at-will bill. And just yesterday, I read an article in the Sandusky Register that does not uh, appear, as I understand it, I'm only on the webpage, but I don't believe this is an op-ed. This is a news story, an article, written by the managing editor of the paper, Matt Westerhold, who says, just refers to this casually as a racist law. The headline is, Lawmakers Don't Defend Racist Law, and it includes this. Three local lawmakers voted in favor of expanding gun rights in a way civil rights organizations say is racist and will lead to the deaths of more black people. But State Senator Teresa Gavarone, State Representatives D.J. Swearingen and Dick Stein were not providing any explanation for why they supported the Stand Your Ground provision in Senate Bill 175, which expands the definition of self-defense. You ready for the money line here, Pete? To include instances in which a person with a gun who feels threatened can chase down and kill another person. Now, that last line, I called it the money line, is because it is just so far beyond the pale, pardon that, 
Um, it is it is just insane. It allows no such thing. Nowhere in the language of this law does it allow anyone to chase down anyone else. So Pete, as a lawyer and as a black man, how do you feel about the insinuation that the vast majority of aggressors who are committing violent crimes are going to be black and thus are going to be in more jeopardy if this law passes? Well, I want to put on a different hat, my Civil Rights Commissioner okay. hat. As it turns out, um, I wish the Ohio General Assembly (laughs) and I wish that Governor DeWine would consult with the Civil Rights Commission. They don't have to go through all these machinations because immediately after the Trayvon Martin incident, we had a full-blown hearing on this. Tons of witnesses, tons of testimony, all kinds of things. And the reason for that is at the time, um, and for most of my tenure, a good portion of my tenure, the commission was in the hands of progressives and they wanted to seize upon the Trayvon Martin incident to show that stand your ground laws are racist are a relic of a of a racist past and they should be uh, completely abandoned eliminated and so what we did is we actually adduced evidence not supposition not conjecture we got evidence and it turned out most of the witnesses were leaning to the left, but unfortunately for them, the evidence confounded their presumptions. It is the opposite of everything you've said these folks are alleging. It is not racist. In fact, the liberals on the commission, we always, after we conduct a hearing, within several months thereafter, we issue findings of fact and a report related to that particular hearing. And we can issue statements and dissents, of of which I did also. But what's interesting about this is, after we conducted the hearing, we spent all kinds of money, time, resources on this thing. The liberals didn't want to issue the report because it was the opposite of their assumption that it was racist and that it hurt blacks. It did the opposite, because what happened is stand your ground laws, and they vary from state to state, but in the main, stand your ground laws don't require, if they go beyond the castle doctrine that you've mentioned, that you don't have to retreat in your home, etc. But you know, if you're on the street and somebody confronts you and uses deadly force, you don't have to you know, go running for the hills. Now, most people probably do. But if you are armed, you're allowed to defend yourself. It, as an aside, Bob, consider the incoherence of the left's position that we should get rid of stand-your-ground laws and at the same time defund the police. In other words, we are just perpetual <laughs> victims. It, it just, it's the nuttiest thing imaginable. And for your listeners out there, many of whom I know, I know in their guts, they understand how stupid and lunatic this is, and they are absolutely right. Just go to the Civil Rights Commission website, take a look at it, read it. Well, frankly, you can't now because they didn't want to release it, but there's, there's underlying uh, data related to that. And what it shows in the main, and, and I'll just cut through uh, all the, the, the fog, is that black uh, defendants are more likely to invoke stand your ground when under assault, and so aren't subjected to legal liability. And what we found was fewer blacks were incarcerated as a result. Number two is that fewer blacks are killed or harmed as a result of stand-your-ground legislation. In those states, and it's difficult to do this, you know, uh, there there are a number of experts who came up with this, and, uh, you know, you look at all the data, and it's it's difficult to do. But nonetheless, uh, what it does is, it enhances the probability that blacks are not going to be subject to grievous harm or death because of an assault. When 
in those states where there are standard ground laws, it appears that if you disaggregate for all other possible factors, that the, the existence of standard ground and a couple of examples of it actually act as a deterrent against assault against black victims. And blacks are going to be the victims most often of assault anyway. Those are just the facts. So blacks are more likely to be, number one, not prosecuted for lawfully defending themselves. Number two, it's a deterrent against blacks being, being attacked in the first place. Very, very good analysis. Pete, I've got more for you, and I also want to get into the needle. Are you going to take the needle? Should everyone take the needle? Should it be mandatory either by government edict or by edict or by business and commerce that everyone take the vaccination? I'm going to get into the legalities of all of that as we continue as well on AM 1420 The Answer. sides to every story there's the mainstream media side and then there's the truth you are experiencing the truth the bob france authority on am 1420 the answer okay 1036 now we do consider continue with our friend peter kersenow united states commission on civil rights also a member of the president's 1776 commission Cleveland attorney, best-selling author. Pete, I want to go real, before we go to the vaccine and the legalities and all of that stuff, um, just the, the racial component of that stand your ground law from those who call it a racist bill. They say this is going to lead to more black deaths. Is that not the most racist thing you can say? Is that somebody who is going to be killed by somebody who is being threatened is more likely to be black. Now, I know the statistics say that they are. You quote them all the time. But it's essentially, you know, kind of saying, yeah, we admit and know that more black people will be committing violent crimes and thus may be more likely to be shot uh, in, a, in, a, in a self-defense case if stand-your-ground laws ex- extended into public areas. Um, they're, they're the ones who are essentially saying blacks can't be trusted to not commit violent crimes, and thus the kill at will is kill black people at will legislation. I mean, I, I find that to be very, very racially stereotypical. Well, it, it is, but it's also a very convenient use of statistics to forward an ideological agenda. Uh, they c- will conveniently flip over to the other side if it's something that, that uh, promotes their own interests. But the bottom line here is, and, and keep this in mind for all of your listeners, is after we conducted a full-blown hearing on this, brought in all of the experts, all the testimony, it was the clear. Yeah, exactly. It was after the Trayvon case. It's what promoted it, and the liberals wanted to have this hearing because they thought that it would establish that standing ground laws are indeed racist. It did just the opposite, and that's why they suppressed it, did not release it because they were in control. But nonetheless... Uh, the, the evidence is, is pretty is, is not pretty clear is unequivocally clear on that very issue. But the bottom line here is, as I indicated earlier, is the incoherence of defunding the police so police can't defend you, and then defunding yourself—that is, you can't defend yourself—is just nuts on steroids. And we can't go along with this lunacy anymore. Typically, what happens on the left these days is they simply call something racist because they can't articulate a reasonable argument for their proposition, because there is no in in many cases, but they they don't. They simply say racism, and that concludes any kind of argument or discussion. And, of course, media is either going along with it or cowed into doing so. Many of our legislators are cowed into doing it because you can't challenge anything that that is considered to be racist. So uh, just look at the facts. Just is there any way, and, and Peter, trust your own instincts. 
Peter, is there any way, and, I, and this is a big ask, especially with just two days before, Mike DeWine has to either sign it or veto it, but that you can get some of that information from the report for, that, that was put together by the commission after the Trayvon case that you said was not released to Mike DeWine's hands. Because I fear that he's going to do, he's going he's gonna to buckle uh, under the pressure. Nobody wants to be called a racist, especially, uh, you know, an elected executive, and that's what's going to happen. State Representative Stephanie House, you probably know, screaming uh, to House Republicans, this is not funny, this is not cute. Most of y'all don't even represent enough black people to have an informed decision on this. And when we give you the facts, facts, uh, it's like we don't care as long as the NRA is happy. She's saying these things, saying this is going to result in more black deaths, all of the things that you say categorically proven the other way around. But I fear Mike DeWine's going to hear her and others say that this, especially in this time, this, you know, this woke racial, you know, racially woke America or whatever, that Mike DeWine is going to veto this. Yeah, elections matter, Bob, and the reason for that is because we, I, I cannot get that information to DeWine um, because the, the report was not released, and by our own rules, you know, I can't promote that report other than oh, to I talk see. about it like this or talk about my statement. Now, what I, the most I could possibly do, and I don't mind being spanked, I'm spanked all the time by, by various <laughs> individuals who don't like what I do, but I can maybe get my dissent on there that cites many of these things, but, um, you know, as you said, it's probably too late. I just wish this is just a matter of doing simple homework instead of pontificating instead of posture posturing on a particular point why not for the first time in their legislative lives i don't mean pejorative like that why why not simply do a bit of research not take a knee-jerk reaction to something and look at what is in the best interest of ohioans regardless of race and in this particular case, it's the best interest of Ohioans and also particularly of black Ohioans. Yeah. So to simply call something racist and then condemn people to a worse situation is the height of irresponsibility. And I'm putting that mildly. Well, you know, a, a little bit of homework would go a long way here, especially. And I'm going to give you one more quote here from House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes from Akron, who uh, told Republicans when this bill was being voted on in the Ohio House, that when Democrats raise their voice about stand your ground, it is coming from a place of pure fear and hurt. Speaking of, of again, African-Americans. And what I would say is the fear and the hurt are felt by the victims of violent crimes. Right. And the vast majority of the victims of violent crimes are black. So if you really want to stand up for people, African-Americans who are fearful and who are hurt often by violent crime, stand up for them and their right to defend themselves rather than for the rights of the perpetrators of said violent crimes, which I just don't know how they don't get that. Okay, uh, Pete, let's move. Thank you. Let's move to the vaccines. Um, Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell anybody what to do. It is your choice whether you want to get that vaccine, whether it be Moderna or Pfizer or whatever you can get your hands on. Uh, that is your position, uh, your, your opinion, rather, and you can have any position you wish. I am not going to get one. I do not believe that a vaccine, or excuse me, that a virus with a 99.997% survival rate and uh, recovery rate is worth changing my DNA over. So I'm not going to get it. But Pete... I keep reading and hearing more and more. Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, Democrat presidential candidate, wants government to create a barcode exclusive to every individual who is vaccinated that they can carry on their phone. At least I hope it's only on their phone and not the inside of their forearm. Um, but they want everybody to have a barcode showing that they have been vaccinated. Uh, 
my question to you, Peter Kersenow, is it lawful, either by government edict or by commerce, um, places that provide businesses, or excuse me, that provide goods and services to force people to have a vaccination in order to avail themselves of those services. Getting on a bus, getting on a plane, getting in a cab, um, uh, going to a concert, going into a Browns game, that you have to show your barcode or your your chip or your stamp or whatever that shows you have been vaccinated in order to be able to have the liberties guaranteed us by our Constitution. Pete, yeah. either way. Um, in the I mean, look, that's a little bit of a complicated question, but I'll give you as brief an answer and simple as answer as you possibly can. A lot of it is contingent upon whether or not there's state or government action involved versus private action. There are far more constraints on the former constitutional and statutory constraints. For example, if the government tells you that you've got to do something that, um, you know, uh, it could involve an equal protection issue, if it's something that involves a constitutional protection, uh, there are various standards the government must meet. One of them could be a compelling state interest. That is, there is a compelling state interest must, must, must meet, meet strict scrutiny. And the question comes to mind is whether or not um, where, as you indicated, the recovery rate is 99.9% for most people, whether or not there's a compelling governmental interest to do anything like that. But we're getting far afield. The fact of the matter is we should be looking at it even more fundamentally. Um, barcodes in the United States of America, my goodness, if we don't rebel or, or re- revolt against that, then we've lost America as we understand it. I, I Just from a, a principle standpoint, I would never brand myself in any fashion compelled by the government or, frankly, anybody else. But I wouldn't do that, and I think most Americans feel fundamental freedoms are at stake when you have to start branding yourself in order to gain access to certain to, to be clear uh, that was my that, to be clear Pete that was my next step his original statement was barcodes that everybody can carry on their phones of course not everybody carries a phone so the question is is then where do you brand somebody on it so I just kind of went to you know the obvious uh, you know in terms of in terms of treating people or you must show your papers or you must show your number or your identification Go ahead and right and, and and either I mean it's worse of course if it's, if it's something that invades your 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 body, but nonetheless, it, there are different standards. For example, a well, the vaccine sport. itself invades your body. That's the point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the vaccine itself is by it's, definition exactly going to right. invade your body. So why not have the mark too? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that if it is a private sector endeavor, for example, an employer, an employer can say with certain exceptions, religious accommodation exceptions, so on and so forth. And the EOC has said this is not an issue with respect to, you know, race discrimination, other forms of discrimination, or uh, not even potentially an OSHA issue, although I think that it, in many cases there are OSHA implications. We've been involved in that uh, already since the beginning of the pandemic. But nonetheless, an employer can say, hey, look, uh, before you come into the workplace, you've got to establish that you had a vaccine. And the employer has a rational basis for doing that. A lower standard needs to be met by an employer. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the employer can just bar somebody. There has to be an attempt to afford a reasonable accommodation if there are religious objections, for example, to get a vaccine, uh, what, whatever it may be. But nonetheless, employers have more latitude than the government has. But again, aside from the law, um, the law is obviously very important because we are a nation of laws, but nonetheless, there's an overarching principle as Americans, it seems to me, that we have to make rational decisions as to who we are as a freedom-loving people. And that doesn't mean we unnecessarily put people at risk. 
That doesn't mean we act in, in stupid and frivolous ways unnecessarily or uh, unconcerned about the threats we may pose to others. But as Americans, we cherish our liberties, and without those liberties, we're no longer Americans. And are we going to allow a a pandemic, as horrific as it is, I don't mean to to downplay it, a lot of people have died, a lot of loved ones of individuals who are in this listening audience have died, and don't want to downplay that at all. I take certain precautions because I think those are the smart ones, but I have the freedom to do so. I'm not told by the government in a draconian fashion, in, in a fashion that you expect from Eastern, old Eastern Bloc countries, that I have got to present my papers, so to speak. Uh, it, it is, it, when we do that, I hate to use, because it's so overwrought and overused, the slippery slope term, but it applies. At what point do we simply capitulate to the government and allow it to dictate to us almost everything about how we comport ourselves as Americans? Well, we won't be Americans any longer. So there's a big, big issue here. And for all of us who have seen what's happened in the last year, who have seen what's happened during the presidential election, it seems as if we're losing what it is to be an American. Our liberties, our freedoms, our rule of law in many respects are being corrupted. The facts are being corrupted. I don't mean to go far afield, but the fact is that we have huge principles that transcend statutes at stake here. The United States of America was not founded in order to have statutes that we agree with. Okay, There are bigger principles at stake. And one of those is the ability to be free from government coercion, the ability to be free from show me your papers. Is there anything more un-American than show me your papers. It harkens to the Eastern Black countries, it harkens to Germany, and I don't mean to, to, to short, give that short shrift. I mean, we're not anywhere close to where those are. But the drift is there, and we should recoil against Well, it's the slope that's there, Pete, and, and I don't think you are that far afield. Uh, You talk about the slipperiest of all slopes. If they can make you, and again, I'm not talking about the government side. You pointed out correctly, well, I I think it's correct because you said it. Uh, You know, there are a lot more restrictions on a government mandate, but uh, you mentioned employers, and I'm talking more about providers, business providers, for example, the airlines. If they say you cannot fly, you cannot fly. Maybe you have to do it for business. Maybe you have to do it for pleasure. Maybe you want to fly down to Miami during the winter and get, and get away from the uh, get away from the uh, you know the cold winters up here or something. You can't get on board our aircraft unless you show me your papers, show me your barcode, show me your whatever in the interest of the greater good. That is the slipperiest of slopes. If they can mandate that, then they can mandate many many other things again in the interest of the greater public good. Take away your individual rights and liberties to do what you want with your own health. Um, if they can do that when it comes to the vaccine, they can do it when it comes to what you eat, how much you weigh, uh, you know, how you conduct your way of life. And that's what I, I, I don't think you're that far off at all. No, I, I think you're right, because this isn't merely about a pandemic. And again, I want to give it what it's due. It's a yes. disease. Hundreds of thousands have died. It's something that you shouldn't, you know, view frivolously. But, you know, I, I, my own view is... Given all, even with all those things, I think that what we have seen here is an erosion of our liberties that is very, very concerning. And what other liberties can be eroded? I don't want to see the next crisis or alleged crisis to chip away at even more of our liberties until we, we are statist in the terms of, you know, some of the Eastern Bloc countries. And again, without trying to exaggerate, because that's a whole different, uh, 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 genus of government there. Uh, but nonetheless, we are so many 
in the media especially are casual about these erosions to freedom as if it's, it's just a little thing here or there. No, it is not right. a little thing. And for those of them uh, in the media especially, but many in our political class who don't understand average Americans recoiling against this, then those folks may maybe go back to third grade history classes and read why we recoil against them. Because we are Americans and we cherish our liberties. This is what makes us Americans. Response to pandemic in terms of being able to produce a vaccine at warp speed, which we did. Yes, that's quintessentially American. It's quintessentially Trump, frankly. But that's the smallest of the reactions to coronavirus. The biggest thing is the liberties that we have is what provided us with the ability to do just that. We cannot lose our liberties. Peter Kersenow laying it out. Uh, Pete, I've got one more question for you, and I need you to answer it in a minute. This is hypothetical. If you could only have one of the two, or rather, let me do it a different way. If I could tell you that on January 20th, the coronavirus would be completely eradicated and wiped out, and we have no more lockdowns, no more closures, no more restrictions, no more masks, no more anything, or you can have uh, uh, Joe Biden be president. <laughs> would it be worth your would it be worth sacrificing the presidency to Joe Biden to get rid of the coronavirus or would you say no let the coronavirus stay and keep Trump in office? Um, I think Joe Biden is an unmitigated threat to the United States of America, whether he knows it or not. <laughs> Headline, person now chooses virus over Biden. <laughs> I had to do it. Hey, Pete, um, I thank you for an entire year of, uh, of great analysis and commentary. Thank you for what you do, and I look forward to continuing this conversation in 2021. Thank you, Bob. Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you, Pete. Uh, that's Peter Kirsten out, 1052. You heard it here. Kirsten out chooses the Chinese virus over Joe Biden. Right back after this. Well, 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 that is pretty much going to do it. Uh, good stuff from Peter Kersenow, really good stuff from Lisa Woods earlier in the program. Uh, I've only got time for a call or two here, so uh, we'll just go ahead and do this. John is in Wadsworth, wants to respond to something that he heard. I just don't know what it is. Hey, John, good morning. You're on the air. Go right ahead. Well, good morning. I, I just uh, happened to uh, read pretty wide, widely, and I... Uh, mm-hmm listen to the radio and all I hear across the country, across the United States, Canada and the continent are probably about 1500 right wing radio stations manned by uh, a highly paid propagandist and uh, bought uh, stations bought by uh, billionaires. Yet uh, these right wingers uh, seem to uh, uh, claim that they're the underdog uh, absurdly. I've read some left-wing uh, things like uh, Global Research, globalresearch.ca, uh, which could be considered left-wing. A lot of accredited economists, historians, and political scientists, but they're completely censored, blockaded from any of the media for for years and decades. And and, and it's just relevant to your conversation about 1619, the WSWS.org website, the World Socialist website, has been lambasting that 1619 project as a diversion from uh, a a class consciousness uh, into this uh, phony identity politics. 
So they're attacking these very same things that the right does, but from, I think, a much more rational perspective, because uh, they're talking about the only difference between there's, these there's, people. There's nothing that a socialist organization, my friend, and John, thank you for the call, there's nothing that a socialist organization that does. Uh, that a so- socialist organization does that can be considered rational. The only reason they have attacked the 1619 Project is because the 1619 Project was forced to admit that the entire thing was a work of fiction, that the entirety of it was not based in historical reality. And that's the reason why even those on the left have had to say, okay, we have to break with this. If we promote it now, we are just going to get destroyed, and our agenda and our narrative will be crushed. So it's not rationality that might lead whatever that socialist website website you just described uh, to condemn the 1619 Project. It's not rationality or rationale. It is simple self-preservation, because if they hope to be taken seriously on other matters, they have to call fiction that which is fiction. And that's where I'm going to have to leave it. I appreciate the phone call. Uh, Great conversation by Peter and Lisa today. Tomorrow we'll have much more uh, opportunity for you to call as well. Stay here. Mike Gallagher's coming up. Stay then for Charlie Kirk and Dennis Prager on AM 1420, The Answer. Have a great day. Bye-bye.